think yesterday and uh, all of the things that I was thinking about, one of the things I forgot to do was just uh, say thank you to all of you for inviting me to, to be back with you again for, for the third time. I was here many, many years ago, and then again, uh, more recently, I still haven't checked to see exactly what the last time was, but to, to be back again a third time is truly a pleasure and a joy for me, and I especially want to say thank you to the elders for extending the invitation and the confidence to, in me to, to lead our thoughts and our study in God's Word. It's always a joy to come back to places where you've been before because you get to see old friends. Brother, Brother Shiflet and I are old friends. Uh, we've, we've been knowing each other for a very long time, going back to meetings that I held in Hot Springs. Uh, I don't even want to think about how long ago that's been. But we go back a, a long time, and, and many of you have met through the years here and in other places, and it's, uh, it's always great to see how people are doing what's going on in their lives, and uh, I look forward to getting to know some of you for the first time this week and to getting to know all of you a little bit better. It's a joy to be in the family of God and to have so much to discuss and to share together. Well, uh, we're beginning tonight a, a second series in our series of meetings. Yesterday, we talked about margin, and tonight we're going to begin a four-part series that will focus on when the waves keep coming. And that, that's something that comes from Psalm 42, and you can turn over there if you want. I'll be bringing up the specific verse we're going to focus on tonight in a few moments. But uh, Psalm 42 is kind of uh, famous to us because of the song that has been being sung for about a generation now about as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs after you. I remember years ago when I first moved to Kentucky, there was an elderly lady who was a member of the church there, and she told me one Sunday, Lawrence, Brother Lawrence, I, I don't like that deer song. I do not like that deer song. I said, well, Sister Cash, what's the problem? She said, well, there's nothing in the Bible about deer drinking from water brooks. And I said, well, actually, in Psalm 42, it does refer to that. And she paused for a moment, and she said, well, I still don't like it. So I guess we're going to like what we're going to like sometimes, but it is a famous psalm and one of my favorites because of just the way that the psalmist in it, as he is in so many places, so real about the struggle that he's going through, and yet he's not just going to lay down and give up. He continually is trying to remind himself and stir himself up, reminding himself of what he knew in the light, even though he was in a dark place at the time that he composed the psalm, he's not going to, in the darkness, forget what he knew to be true in the light. And I think there's something wonderful about that for all of us. Whenever we're going through some struggles, whenever you're going through some hard times, and it's easy in, in the middle of all that to get tunnel vision and forget larger realities. And what we need to do is remember what we knew to be true when we were in the light. The psalmist does that, and we'll talk about that some in some later lessons. But as, as this psalm unfolds, he begins with this idea of, of the deer going to the water brook. And in my mind, what I see taking place is that this is a deer who has, has frequented this particular location, this particular stream, in order to satisfy his thirst many, many times in the past. Perhaps as a creature of habit, this was his regular routine. But on this occasion, when he arrives there on a hot uh, day, in order to quench his thirst, the stream has dried up. 
and he's unable to get the, uh, the, the thirst-quenching, fresh, sparkling water flowing from the mountaintop down into his meadow as he had been accustomed to in the past. And I think that maybe that's the image that he's trying to set up for us because as he goes on in the psalm, he, he talks about how he, the writer, used to gather with the people of God and join with them in worship and in praise and in song, but for some reason he is unable to do that at this point in his life. I don't know if it's sickness. I don't know if he's being pursued by uh, those who are trying to hunt for his life. That was often the case with David. But for whatever reason, he is now excluded from the people of God, excluded from the public worship of God, and unable to refresh his spirit in the manner in which he had in times gone by. Anyone who's been sick for a prolonged period of time or for some other reason been unable to assemble with the people of God realizes what it means not to take for granted what we so easily do and the great refreshment that comes from us being together in times like we are tonight. But he was unable to do that and yet he tries to stir himself up and remember that, that that's the way it was and in the future he's going to be able to do that again. He has hope in God that one day he will once more gather with the people of God and be renewed and be strengthened. But between what he remembers in the past and what he anticipates in the future is the difficult present. And that's where he is right now. And it just feels to him like this. In verse 7, he says, Deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. It's a time when he feels like waves of adversity are just breaking over his head one after another, and he can no more get over the one thing that happens to him before the next thing befalls him. Have you ever had a season of life that was like that? I think 2020 was that way for me in a lot of ways, and perhaps for some of you, and maybe right now you're continuing to deal with just an onslaught of one thing after another. If you've ever been to the beach and the waves were kind of high and, and maybe you weren't paying careful attention and all of a sudden got knocked off your feet for a moment and you start trying to recover your, uh, yourself and you start trying to stand up again, what happens? As, as soon as you're just about to get your balance, the next wave comes in and it knocks you over. And that can happen over and over again and it's disorienting and it's sort of a helpless and powerless feeling and that seems to describe where the psalmist is as he writes that. And it's a place that all of us have been perhaps or maybe are or certainly one day will be, which is the why behind this particular four-part series that we begin tonight. Because when the waves keep coming, we need something that will keep us from going under. When life gets tough or the storm and waves of life, the waters of life get really rough, we need something that can function for us like a life preserver to keep us afloat, to keep us from going under for the last time. And so these four lessons, I hope, will reveal four truths that will work like life preservers to keep us afloat when the waves keep on coming. Just a quick preview, tomorrow night we're going to see that one of those lifelines or life preservers is the truth that I don't have to go it alone. 
Sometimes we get to feeling sorry for ourselves or we isolate ourselves and we think that there's no one around to help us, and that's not the case. We don't have to go through whatever it is you're going through by yourself. And secondly, we're going to, on on what's that, uh, Wednesday night, we're going to see that God's not indifferent. One of the things that happens when the waves are breaking over us is we begin to think things that aren't true. And sometimes we believe that this is happening because God's angry or maybe God's punishing me or maybe God isn't there or maybe he's just indifferent to my plight altogether. And none of those things for the child of God are true. God's not indifferent. And then the the final lesson in the series on Thursday, we're going to see that this life is not ultimate, that this life is not everything there is. And that's something that can alleviate a sense of panic that I think strikes a lot of people when life starts not to not turn out for them the way they had thought that it would. And they feel like everything's passing them by and I'm just missing out. And we start to think, uh, you know, uh, that there's just nothing for me. I've, I've missed the boat. But the reality is, if we're faithful children of God, this isn't all there is. And this life's not ultimate. And that can be a life preserver for the person for whom the waves keep coming. But tonight, we're going to look at this particular truth that I find personally very helpful, that when life is rough, when things are going wrong, it's helpful to know that it's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. Now, what what does that statement mean? What do I mean by that? And how does knowing that help us? Well, those are the two things I want to try to do in the next few moments that we have together. When I say it's not supposed to be this way, what I mean is the world as we experience it, as you and I are experiencing it perhaps even right now, is not the way that God originally designed it to be. The world that we live in is filled with all kinds of adversity and trial and difficulty and disaster and tragedy and pain and suffering and death. And it's comforting to me to know that that's not just because God intended it to be that way from the, from the beginning and wanted for whatever uh, sadistic reasons to just cause his creatures to suffer needlessly and without purpose. Instead, we see that there is in the scripture a description of God's original creation that is described as good. In fact, you may remember if you're a student of the Bible beginning in Genesis 1, in each of the successive days of creation, God says at the end of it, and it was good. He actually does that every time except after Monday. Uh, That's actually true. It does not say that after Monday, what we call Monday, that it was good. So if you really don't like Mondays, that's biblical. Every other day, God said at the end of that day of creation, he looked at what he had created And he said, it's good. He's like a great craftsman who does a tremendously good job. And at the end of it, it steps back and looks and says that that was good. But it's interesting because after each day was good, the next day he made what was good even better. Until at the end of the week of creation, he could look back at the whole thing and say, it is very good. And it says that he blessed mankind which tells me that God created a very good world in which he intended for man and woman, for mankind, humanity, to live under his blessing. There's a word that's used not in Genesis 1 and 2, but throughout the Hebrew Old Testament that describes 
the nature of creation as God originally intended it. It's the Hebrew word shalom, which you may still hear Jewish people use today. And the word shalom is sort of akin to our word peace, but it means much more than simply the absence of war or hostility. It describes, it describes a wholeness, a completeness. It describes things certainly being at peace, but because they are at peace because they are the way that they are supposed to be. Everything joined and fit together properly. And so the world was made whole and unbroken primarily through its union with the Creator. That is key to this whole lesson. So if you've phased out for a moment, join with me again. God originally did not create heaven and earth to be two separate entities. But it's very interesting to note that in the beginning that heaven and earth are overlapping and conjoined realities. Not two separate entities, but overlapping realities. God's space and man's space overlapped. And we know that in part because the scripture tells us that that God would come walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And there was this open dialogue that would apparently take place between mankind, between Adam and Eve, and between uh, them and God. And, And that joining together of heaven and earth, of God's space and man's space, created this shalom, this peace, where everything was beautiful and harmonious and peaceful and as it was intended to be. And one of the things that God did was entrust humanity, mankind, with the responsibility of ruling over this world, of ruling God's good creation, and doing so in a way that was consistent with his good and perfect will. But man betrayed that trust. And this is the hard truth of Scripture. The man betrayed that trust and shattered the peace, shattered the shalom, and introduced in the wake of his rebellion and sin and and turning his back on God, introduced all the suffering and sorrow, all the death and disaster that we now experience. Not because that was the way that God originally designed it, but because of the pulling apart of heaven and earth, of the separation of God and man in the intimate way that he designed it and intended it to be from the beginning. And you know the story. I won't take the time tonight to go into much detail about it, but simply put, God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, and we could go on and on about that, but it gave mankind a choice whether he would rule and govern the world under the authority and consistent with the good and perfect will of God, or whether he would reject that and go his own way. And the fact of the matter is, when he chose to eat the tree of of the fruit of that tree, which God had forbidden, he made a choice and in effect was stiff-arming or pushing God away and saying, God, we can take it from here. Maybe what you started was good, and maybe it's even very good, but We believe that we can now act as independent agents, turning our back on you, and we can run the show from this point forward. And that was the beginning of all of the misfortune that you and I continue to experience today. 
death and destruction, sickness and sorrow. The Apostle Paul puts this rather bluntly in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, where he says that sin came into the world through one man. Speaking of Adam, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. This refers to what the theologians call as the call the, the fall, or referred to as the, the fall. And the fall simply is that idea of the rupture or the separation, the distancing between God and man, between heaven and earth, between God's ideal and the mess that we made of it. And all of that began with man's, one man's rebellion in the garden. Now there is controversy, as you may be aware, over this verse and exactly what is meant by the idea that death spread to all men because all sinned. Some argue that because of Adam's sin, all of us are accounted as sinners and guilty and condemned before God on that basis. I don't think that that's the point that he's making here. But he is saying that there is, there is a connection there. We do suffer and experience physical death, and I think along with that, all of the sorrow and sufferings that we, we know as a consequence of that first sin in the garden. But the reality is that none of us can blame Adam and act like he's the only one who's to blame. Because he says that all sinned, and I take that to mean that we have followed suit. Like father, like son, we have done the same kind of thing. And, and if you're honest, and I'm honest, I know that there have been many times in my life where I have eaten the forbidden fruit or I have gone my own way and stiff-armed God, turned my back on him and said, I think I know best. I understand what your word and your will is, but I'm going to do it my way. And so we contribute to the problem that began with our ancient forefather in the garden long ago. And we continue to shatter the shalom, to disrupt the peace and the harmony and the fabric of God's good creation. But he goes on and describes this a little bit in more detail in Romans, the eighth chapter and the 20th verse, where he says that the creation, speaking all of the inanimate creation as well as mankind, was subjected to frustration, or some translations say futility. So this seemingly futile and chaotic and inexplicable disorder that we see in the world around us the tragedy, the sin, the suffering, the death, all of these undesirable things that take place, this was something that the creation was subjected to, not by its own choice. And I take that to mean not because that's just the, the way that it necessarily had to be. The natural order of things couldn't have been different. But by the will of the one who subjected it to that condition in hope. In other words, God, because of our decision to turn our, back, our, back, our backs, backs on effect, okay, have it your way. If you want to have a world independent and in rebellion against God, then go for it. And we'll see what that looks like. And the sad and unfortunate experiences that all of us endure are a consequence of that decision. And we'll see that even that, I think, is not a vindictive move on the part of God, 
but rather even in itself is gracious and loving. For now, I would simply want us to make two observations from these texts in Genesis and Romans. The two things that I want us to see in the first place is that the world we have is the world we've asked for. It's not the world that God originally made. He has something much, much better in mind for us. But the world that we have, with all of the sin and the sorrow and the suffering and the death that exists in it, is the world that we have asked for when we told God that he is not necessary. And so we see what it's like when the fabric of creation is torn. It's a world where God's wisdom has been exchanged for our own. Where his vision of what is true and what is good and what is beautiful have been replaced with that of our own and according to our own lights and tastes. And it means, secondly, that God honored our request to have a world that's run by us, independent of him, and often in rebellion to his good and perfect will. And he honored that request for a specific reason. It's just amazing to me that God would honor that request on our part, but he has, and he's done so, I think, for this reason, that we might taste the bitter fruit of our rebellion and long for the pleasure of his presence. Think about that a moment. It's taken me a long time to kind of come to grips with this idea, but I think it's really important. That there could be really nothing worse for us than to just be satisfied with enough creaturely comforts in this world that we'd just be okay with that without having an intimate, personal relationship with God the giver of all good and perfect gifts. Here's what I, I mean by that. Think of these two Bible characters, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was a flawed man, but in all of his wanderings and in all of his wrestlings with God, he, he sought God and he sought the blessing of God in his life. And as he developed as, as, a, as a character in the story uh, that describes his life, he, he sought closer and closer union with, with God and would not, in the end, be satisfied with anything other than that the Lord would bless him. And he held on to the Lord in that wrestling match, that strange story when he crossed the brook Jabbok. And so we see someone who there is longing for this union and this restoration of, of a true and meaningful and real relationship with God. And the interesting thing to me is the contrast with his brother Esau, who the New Testament describes as a godless man. Now Jacob was very concerned when he met back with Esau after their many years uh, of, of separation because of the underhanded things he had done to his older brother. And he thought his brother might kill him, so he brought a bunch of gifts to offer Esau. But Esau said, no, enough time's passed. I've gotten over that. And I have multiplied flocks and wealth. And, and he says, I have everything I need. So at this time, Esau is a man satisfied, apparently quite completely, with only the things that this world has to offer and says, that's enough for me. But Jacob was wanting something more. 
and would wrestle God for his blessing. And I think that there's nothing that could be sadder than for us to, as modern Americans, become so satisfied with our comfortable lives that we could just say, you know, I can just live this out and that's enough for me. Because God has in mind something so much richer, so much more enduring, so much more beautiful and purposeful and meaningful than what this world in separation from God could ever offer. And that's why I say that it's actually his grace and mercy that, allowed, that, that he subjected this world to this futility that we experience so that it would jar us into realizing that without God, we, we cannot be ever truly happy and truly satisfied. That he's made our souls for him and that we will never be truly filled and satisfied until we have again joined that relationship with him that is accomplished through Jesus Christ who is the true and living way who once again reconnects mankind with God and reconciles us together. And so God has done this that we might taste this bitter fruit of our rebellion and long for the pleasure of his presence. Now the question is, how does knowing all of this and knowing that the world as it now is and your life as it now is, is not what it was intended to be at the beginning? How does that, how does that help us as we go through the difficulties of life? And I think that the first thing that it does of, of two things is that it helps us not be quite so troubled when the troubles of life show up. Or we could put it this way, I won't be shocked or as shocked that bad things happen in a world that has stiff-armed and turned its back on God. I mean, why should we expect anything different? Why should we think that we can separate ourselves from the giver of every good and perfect gift from him who is the source of all life and light and love and peace and joy, that we could turn away from him and not experience difficult hardship in this world. We shouldn't be shocked by the bad things that happen in this world. Jesus said to his own disciples before he departed this world, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. And... I've come to experience firsthand that that's absolutely true, and many of you have too. In this world, you will have trouble because this world is not what it was originally intended to be. But we can take heart, Jesus says, because he has overcome the world, and through him, we can find at last what it is we're looking for. But we won't be so shocked when we, know, when we know this truth by the bad things that happen in my life and maybe even the bad things that happen in my heart. And though we should be appalled by our sin, we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that I have sinful impulses. And though we will still be shocked and dismayed at the tragedies that can take place in the world around us and in the lives of those that we love, we should come to expect that these kinds of things are a part of the reality of the fallen world that we are a part of. And the second thing that it does is it will help us see that the solution is not to run further away from God, 
but to draw closer to him. If I don't like the consequences of living in a world that has turned its back on God, why would I want to spend an eternity with my back turned toward God? The answer to the problem, if we don't like what we're experiencing, isn't less of God, it's more of God. It's to find that reunion and the peace and the joy that can be extended to us through Jesus, who is that life, the truth, and the way back to the Father's house and the Father's heart. And that we'll experience through that the beginning of something beautiful and good that will continue to blossom as we make our journey back to the Father's house. And so here's why it matters to me so much that we get this. Because as I said in the introduction, sooner or later, we're all going to face, you're going to face, I'm going to face seasons of life in which the waves just keep on coming. And we're going to find ourselves crying out if we're not prepared. How could this happen? Or it's not supposed to be like this. I've been asked that. How could this happen? After the sudden and unexpected death of a young mother, after the suicide of an elder, after a wife discovering her husband's adulteries. It's a hard and difficult world that we are living in. And I've asked that question myself at different times in my life. Our youngest child has Disabilities that are sometimes difficult to understand and difficult to deal with. I watched my father slowly and agonizingly pass away from this world this past year. And even worse than that, I watched my mother-in-law go through what I just could not imagine, just unimaginable suffering and pain before her final breath was taken And you say to yourself, it's not supposed to be like this. It's not supposed to be like this. And if you're, and this isn't the invitation, so because I don't want you to grab your songbook, but if you're here tonight and maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you have real serious doubts about the reliability of the Bible describing things as they actually are, I would ask you to seriously consider this. Do you feel like the world is the way it's supposed to be? Do you feel like all of these tragedies and hardships and death and everything is that's that's just you're just okay with with that or does it seem like to you there's something not quite right? And if you do feel that way, why? I mean, if nature is all there is, then why are we not just like the lower animals that also experience suffering and death but seem to have no thoughtful concern about why that is. They don't ponder, why is it this way or how could this happen? Maybe, just maybe, we really are created in the image and likeness of God and we're meant for so much more. And we ought to long for and seek the answers that Jesus came to provide. 
Maybe some of you tonight are suffering with other kinds of difficult things and wondering, why is it like this or how could this happen? A couple struggling with infertility that I've known have struggled with this kind of question. Parents who've had their children mistreated or maybe you find unfairness at the workplace or you are in an illness now that you never imagined you would be going through. Or some people, you're facing a relationship breakdown that is just hard to bear. When we look at all of that, we echo the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 15 when he says, what is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be numbered. Solomon was, he was an observer of the world and of human behavior and he applied his massive wisdom and intellect to the solving of the problems of humanity. And he came to this conclusion late in life that no matter how hard he tried and no matter how many smart people had gathered around him, what was crooked, it just seemed like couldn't be made straight. And the things that were missing and lacking, just there were so many of them that you can't even count how many things are messed up and wrong in this world. And so that describes where you and I are tonight, even now. We're caught in this middle ground, that turbulent space where the waves keep coming and crushing and crashing down upon our heads. It's a space between how things used to be, and we still somehow retain, even these millennia later, a memory of that garden and all the good and peaceful and Shalom that existed in that place. And we are looking in the other direction toward that day in which all will be restored and everything will be made whole and every tear will be wiped away. And the union of God and man will be complete and God will dwell among them and wipe every tear from every eye. But right now is that messy middle between these two places. And I think that that's one of the things for me that makes the miracles of Jesus so meaningful now. When I was younger, I saw them purely as demonstrations of power. But then it occurred to me that if that's all Jesus was trying to do in the miracles that he performed, that there were things he could have done that would have been greater demonstrations of power, perhaps. I mean, he could have just flown up into the air and sky right you know, uh, across the, the sky, something about, you know, I am Jesus, the Son of God, like it or leave it. Flown over to Rome and plucked the crown off the emperor's head and flown around with that, put it on himself and said, I am the king. But instead, almost all of the miracles that Jesus performed were taking the things in this world that are broken and that caused people the greatest amount of grief and suffering and pain and making them whole. Touching the leper, who is not only racked with physical pain, but a social outcast. The woman with the issue of blood, children who had died and being restored to their parents. All of these things that Jesus did were not only demonstrating his awesome power, but they were signposts of the kingdom to come. 
and what it will be like when he comes again and makes all things new. So what can you and I do in the meantime? How is this a lifeline, a a life jacket for us to hold on to as these waves keep crashing in on our life? Well, first of all, I think it gives us the ability to endure with patience the suffering that comes with living in a fallen world. And secondly, it enables us to embrace that redemption that Jesus has initiated when he came the first time. And the world already is so much better of a place than it used to be. Cannot imagine what it would have been like to live on the other side of of the cross and before Jesus came and and we have all the assurance and comfort and, and hope that we have in him. But we have those things and we have the spirit that he's given as a down payment now of a promissory note of all that is to come for us in the future. And I can embrace that and it gives me strength in the present. And finally, I can long for the redemption that he will complete when he returns. There's nothing wrong that's not going to be made right. And everything that's broken in the life of the believer will be made whole again. And so Peter closes, as we close our lesson, Peter says this to us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. He says, brothers and sisters, therefore with, with minds that are alert and fully sober, and that's not necessarily always hard to do because of the sobering realities of life in a fallen world. With our minds alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As believers, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we have great hope that the Lord will come again and everything will be made right, that we will have an experience of grace that we can hardly even imagine in this present time and that it's coming. And that is something we can set our minds on as a life preserver while the waves keep crashing in and disorienting us. It sobers us to remember where we've come from, why we're in this messy middle, and where we're headed. Well, if you're not a Christian tonight, we want to extend to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the invitation that Christ offers. It's his invitation, not ours. But we stand and along with the Spirit, we invite anyone and all to come and to know the peace and the joy that Jesus brings and that introduces into our messy lives and the suffering that we experience now the healing that comes from forgiveness of sins and the hope of life everlasting joined again with our Father. If you'd like to lay hold of the promises that Jesus secured for you in his death on the cross and come confess his name, repent of your self-centered ways and rebellion against God and be united with him in baptism, he'll raise you up to begin experiencing this newness of life. If we can help you in that regard, let us know while we stand and while we sing.